Hey, friends and fam, it's John, and it's time for the J-Mart cast for Monday, June 19th. What's going on? How are you? Happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are listening. Hope you had a great Sunday with your family, with your kids, your wife, whatever you were doing. Hopefully, you just enjoyed it. I definitely did. I had such a good time that, um, well, I had some. I had a dinner with my parents. My mom and dad came, and uh, my kids were there too, of course. And we had such a good time that after my parents left and after we put the kids down, I fell asleep right away. <laughs> and it was great because I nearly slept for 12 hours. I think I fell asleep at 7, and I woke up the next morning at 7 as well. And it was oh, very rejuvenating. Sleep is some of the best way to get better, whether it be getting better from illness or just from physical fatigue. Sleep's the best. <laughs> By the way, welcome to Cast, your number one place for physical and financial health. And if we're talking about physical health advice, um, yeah, get, get yourself some sleep. Hopefully you're getting minimum seven hours, seven to nine. You can overdo it too. So I definitely overdid it. <laughs> but I guess it depends, you know. Overdoing it chronically is, is bad. But every once in a while, you got to knock out a 12-hour sleep. Like, I don't normally do that. It's been pretty, like, I don't think I can even remember the last time I slept for 12 hours, but for some reason it was necessary. <laughs> and that is the reason why I did not record a podcast last night to have it ready for Monday morning. This is three weeks in a row now, and I'm starting to feel bad about it. I got to make a commitment to not do that next week and get it out on time. We'll figure something out. So yeah, friends and fam, how's it going uh, we're at July, not sorry, June 19th, like I said, which means that we are two days away from the summer solstice. So two days away from changing seasons officially in the Northern hemisphere from spring to summer, two days away from the longest day of the year. You know, the summer solstice used to have a pretty big historical significance in like ancient cultures, for example, Stonehenge and many other huge, like, um, what are they called? Historical sites, I guess, are aligned with being able to see the sun rising on the solstice. Actually, that's that reminds me that um, really cool Netflix documentary called uh, Ancient Apocalypse, I think. And it, it actually, that one, it does a good job of going over a whole bunch of different monuments uh, that have this alignment with the solstice. It's pretty cool. People used to think that is very meaningful. And I mean, people still do, of course. You know, there's a whole, always, you know, celebrations happening around this time of year, right? So I personally love the solstice. I do feel like it gives me some sort of connection to nature as I, you know, notice the days getting longer and reaching this peak. And I almost have this like sense of almost disappointment because the days are not going to get any longer. And now it's just headed back the other way where they're shorter each day. So it's almost like this bittersweet moment. And yeah, some people think of it as more of a spiritual kind of symbolic thing. They use it as a powerful moment for personal growth and introspection, but maybe that's a little bit too much. 
Anyways, let's talk about health. Let's talk about what constitutes health. I always give my rubric of health being composed of a variety of factors. Breathing, I think that's an important pillar. It's almost like the, not even a pillar, but like the foundation that the pillars are on. Then of course we've got our physical activity and nutrition. Those have to be in line in order to attain health. Then it's the environment we're surrounded in and the social connections that help improve our mental health. Yeah, there might be one I'm missing right now that's probably not coming to mind, but those five are the main key components of health that you really got to watch and really, you really got to be improving all the time in order to either remain healthy or bring yourself out of illness, whatever it may be. That's how I view it. And one component that I want to focus in on today is uh, the nutritional component. If someone asks me about nutrition and how to alter their diet to uh, improve their health, then one of the advice I often give is to eliminate seed oils. What are seed oils? Those are your typical um, vegetable oils as they're... Um, marketed but they're not really vegetable oils they come from seeds so your typical ones are soybean canola corn sunflower and safflower um there might be one that i'm missing but those are the typical ones that i suggest you try to avoid cooking with those and then if you're going to buy some food products if you can find an alternative that doesn't have those in the ingredient list then do your best to get those now, the reason why I recommend to stay away from these is because, first of all, the main fatty acids in these oils are these polyunsaturated fatty acids, which means there are multiple double bonds in the chain of carbons that make up the fat molecule, which inherently makes them more unstable than saturated fats and makes them more susceptible to being oxidized which is not something you want in your body. These fatty acids getting oxidized, that could lead to inflammation. Secondly, I think it's best to stay away from these because of how they're produced. A lot of times there's a significant manufacturing process where there are these solvents used to extract the fatty acids from the seeds. And then there's deodorization and high temperatures involved in the production process and even through getting through the production process could lead to the oil already turning oxidized but before you even consume it so another reason why you should stay away from them and thirdly when it comes to the history of the consumption of these polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs for short generally speaking they've made up about 1% to 3% of the human diet historically, and only recently as the industrial production of them has skyrocketed and you know the marketing departments have <laughs> really pushed these things that human consumption of these has gone up so high. Now it, in a lot of places, it's between 10 and 20% of total calories consumed by individuals. And that's just way too high. I mean, 
this is a significantly higher burden that the metabolism has to deal with than what evolutionarily it has been prepared for. So there's no need to challenge the body so rigorously. But then why do people consume it? Like, why is it suggested you eat it? Well, so I cover this a lot in my State of Health podcast. If you want to go back and check it out, it's episodes five through eight. There are four episodes on this already produced by me, but essentially it relies on this thing called the diet heart hypothesis, which at this point in my mind has been thoroughly debunked. But the diet heart hypothesis says that we know that if we consume more more of these polyunsaturated fatty acids, which the vegetable oils are abundant in, then we will reduce our LDL cholesterol in quote, quote unquote, the bad cholesterol. Of course, it's not actually bad, but that's what it's been termed historically. I think people are coming around on that and realizing that it doesn't make sense to call something in your body bad because it's there for a reason. But anyway, they say that if you lower that, then you lower the risk of cardiovascular disease because there is an association with low uh, LDL cholesterol and low risk of heart disease. But any experiment in which they actually test that and see if you lower your LDL cholesterol, do you actually experience lower risk? It's never been actually shown. In fact, the best study for this is called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. And in that, they definitively show it's not better. And in fact, in the age group above 65 there seems to be a higher risk. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because earlier last week, there was a post on Instagram by this account called The Alan Aragon. And generally, this guy has some decent uh, nutritional advice, but Aaron, once in a while, he posts something that really annoys me because I feel like it's way off. Base, and this is one of them. He was just in this uh, uh, reel that he posted talking about how um, seed oils aren't that bad and that people overemphasize why they're bad. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, first of all, I already gave the three reasons why I think they're bad. But also, when you replace seed oils with something else, like olive oil or just don't cook with oil at all, but use ghee, butter, or tallow, you're not like losing on taste. You're not losing out on taste. You know how people, when they give up sugar, they're losing out on taste. When you give up seed oils, there's no negative here. And then secondly, I looked through the comments. He doesn't even use seed oils. He's like, I prefer olive oil. Well, of course you do. Like, why are you even defending them if you don't even use them like who paid you anyway so i commented um on the post it was not like a comment to the post but it was a comment to a comment so i think it kind of got buried and he didn't answer me right away and then i made another comment this is what i said hey the alan aragon you never answered my comment about the minnesota coronary experiment might have been because the comment got buried can you 
explain why the results of that experiment show that a lower LDL cholesterol doesn't result in lower risk of cardiovascular disease, and in fact, the risk increased in the 65-plus age group. And then a couple of days or three or four days went by and he didn't answer. So then I just commented under my first one and said, like, what's going on? Like, come on, man, like, give me something. And then for some odd reason, he says that he had commented or responded to me and then I just couldn't see it. And then he sent me a screenshot of his response comment just below mine and it appears to be there but for some reason I still can't see it I can only see it when he sends me the screenshot but anyway I'll go over his response and kind of refute it because I can't believe the bs in his response and maybe it's lucky that it doesn't show up so people can't see what kind of bs he's writing here but he goes on to say the Minnesota coronary experiment is one of the most sketchy and flawed studies in literature right off the bat that's complete bs like he's trying to undermine the validity of the study meanwhile it's like one of the most well-controlled studies because it was done in a medical ward with psych patients where those people are given meals specifically and exactly designed for the experiment to be as well controlled as possible in many other nutritional studies many times rather than being given food people are given nutritional advice and then you do the study that way which is complete BS, as opposed to this study where they have complete and utter control about what's actually going in these people's mouths and what isn't. So right away, he's already lying. Okay, then he goes on to say, aside from it being done in the mid-60s, what does it being done in the mid-60s have to do like with it not being good of a study? Like, just because it, like nothing's changed genetically for humans since the 60s. Whatever applies nutritionally back in the 60s applies now. That's a BS comment again. He's just trying to undermine the validity of like one of the best studies in nutrition ever done. He's got, he goes on to say it's refuted by more recent research. Uh, no, it's not. Or if it is, he didn't provide anything for me to look up to see how well it is actually refuted but that's i know that's not true because initially the minnesota coronary experiment was published to be to show that um, the diet heart hypothesis stands true because the data was only partially published it was only like in 2014 when another graduate student was able to get a more full data set that with the reanalysis they were able to show that actually no there is no benefit to changing uh, your diet to include more polyunsaturated fatty acids. And in fact, in the, that's only, only at that point were they able to see that the age group of 65 and older uh, had higher uh, all-cause mortality. He goes on to say it was poorly controlled. Again, it was not poorly controlled. It was very rigorously controlled where people were given meals <laughs> Like, how much more controlled can you, can, can it get? And in fact, there's like stuff about how uh, people didn't know which group they were in because uh, the margarine was like made to look exactly like butter. There's stuff about this, like when you read up on it, like it was very rigorously controlled. Again, and the population study was poorly surveilled. Again, like it was, it was in a medical ward where they can do 
testing and blood drawing and just getting whatever data was necessary. They were very well surveilled. This is this guy's just making stuff up. Anyway, he continues a bit more like that, and then he reads off some bullshit like response about how the study is not valid because um, actually he copied it straight off from like one of the responses to the article on BMJ, British Medical Journal, and it's kind of a weird nonsensical response. I don't even get it. Like it says, the sixteen-year time lag between the start of the inter- intervention and the beginning of the decrease in coronary heart disease mortality can be explained okay apparently they're saying that there's this like first of all there was no there's never a decrease in coronary heart disease mortality they were either the same or for the age group of 65 and older it was less because they died quicker in the experimental group where they got more vegetable oil as opposed to the control group yeah and then it's saying that there's a 16-year time lag between them getting better. First of all, well, they never got better. There was never a time lag. And then there's some BS about the older people would have had significant atherosclerosis and they did not benefit from the dietary change because it was too late for them. Okay, so if you're old, there's basically no point in changing your diet and consuming more PUFAs. And then... If you're the younger, your all-cause mortality is still the same. So, again, there's no point. (laughs) Oh, man. There's just so much garbage on the internet, so much garbage information. And the hard thing is that the same person can give good and bad information simultaneously. So it's like, how do you sort through all this? Well, you basically have to take matter into your own hands and learn how to read scientific papers and how to judge them and analyze them for yourself. And unfortunately, that's really hard. (laughs) But it's either that or you got to find someone who does that, who you trust. That's why you got to come to a J-Mart cast. That's what I'm here for. All right, that's enough health talk. Let's do a Bitcoin update. Let's see, bitbo.io, the price of one Bitcoin is trading at 26950 bucks, US bucks that is, buckaroos, and one buckaroo will buy you 3,711 satoshis, or sats, one Bitcoin subdivides, <laughs> subdivides 100 million times into 100 million sats. It's like dollars and cents but Bitcoin and sats. By the way, support the podcast with some sats by listening to it on the Fountain app or Breeze or Podverse. There's a few options. These are called Podcasting 2.0 apps, which have Bitcoin-enabled wallets that let you send sats to me, either per minute listened or just as one lump sum per episode. You can do it with a comment as well if you do the if you do the lump sum option. And if I get a comment, then I'll definitely read it on the podcast. So I've already yammered for nearly 20 minutes here. So what I'm going to do today for the financial health aspect of the uh, podcast is I'm going to go over a lesson that I actually, I think, talked about two or three episodes ago that I learned from the course that I've been taking on sailor.org 
about the principles of Austrian economics. And I'm just going to repeat it because repetition is the best way to learn. And me repeating it is, will be good for me to kind of practice uh, teaching it and also for the listener to hear it over and over again. Anyway, so we're going to start with the definition of what is a good. A good is something that we humans use to satisfy our human needs, to achieve or meet our human needs. And so, obvious example, you're hungry, you got an apple, an apple is good, is a good that you can use to satisfy your need of hunger, of, you know, meeting your hunger. Now, we can subdivide goods into economic goods or non-economic goods. And the thing that delineates these two is scarcity. If something is scarce, then it's an economic good. If it's not scarce, it's a non-economic good. Super easy example, air. Air is a non-economic good because the supply is so great. There's never such a demand that there's like scarcity in air, right? Air has utility, so it's, it's a good, but it's not scarce. So it's not an economic good. Scarcity makes us value it. And economics is the study of human choices under scarcity. And so scarcity gives rise to property. And then, so we already said economics is the study of human choices under scarcity. So what does it mean to economize? So to economize means to produce and save goods, keep those goods in good condition, also choose which needs we will satisfy with the goods and try our best to get the best possible result with whatever goods we've got. That is a basic description of what it means to economize under scarcity. Now, the interesting thing is that because scarcity forces people to economize by developing valuations of different goods and choosing between them, these valuations are subjective because our judgment of the importance of the good for satisfying our needs can constantly change and our needs can change. So value will change. Thus, it is subjective. And it's not something that's inherent in the good. It's not a property of a good. It's just, um, it only exists in the consciousness of the person who is evaluating the good itself. So, for example, oil. Oil for the long time before the invention of the combustion engine was just seen as a negative because it would, you know, take up land and be unuseful. You can build property on it. But once we realized that you can use it for, you know, either moving goods, like through, you know, using it for engines, right? Or even just burning it up and heating a house. That's also a super valuable utility that it has. Before we knew how to do that, it was worthless and maybe even a negative value, but now it's super valuable because we know how to use it as a as an economic good. Because our 
subjective valuation of it changed over time with new knowledge. Okay, with that established, I'll just go over one more concept from this lesson, which is opportunity cost. And opportunity cost refers to the fact that human time is limited. And because of that, you know, we can't experience everything. We can't, we're, and we're even limited to experiencing only one thing or a few things at a time. So we have to make choices all the time on which things to prioritize, which one over another. So basically the opportunity cost is the cost of any choice must include the cost of foregoing an alternative. So opportunity cost is an important concept to understand because we use it. You can effectively use it for decision making and resource allocation and evaluating the benefits of something, then using that for long-term long-term planning. And I think what it leads me to ultimately understand is that the most valuable resource ultimately is time. Because while goods can be scarce, the human beings are actually very good at producing goods. And the only thing that's the main constraint of how fast um, um, a good is produced and how much of it is produced is how much time is a human using for the production of that good, right? Interestingly, even though the human population has exploded, we're at 8 billion people now, the reserves, the proven reserves of most commodities and basic elements that we humans use has increased because there's more humans using more of their time to produce these goods. And so we have more of them, even oil. So again, time is the most valuable resource because it's the basic input in the production of every other good. All right. And with that, I think I've rambled on enough. I wonder how many people actually listened to the end of the podcast. If you did, email me at jmartfit at substack.com. I'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. Other than that, I'll catch you next week. Until then, stay active, be grateful, J Mart out.